And it was, you know, only until 2008 that we were able to raise capital. And and then it was surprisingly a journey of failures, right? Of trying to figure out product market fit and then trying to figure out growth. And then each one of of those journeys um, is a journey of failures, right? And, um, and, And if you realize that this is a journey of failure, then then there are automatically uh, two conclusions, right? The first one we already established. Don't be afraid to fail, right? Because if you're afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed. The second one is, look, the faster that you fail, mm-hmm. you actually have enough time to make another attempt. Right? And so fail fast. And, and the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. You don't need to be perfect in order to win the market. You need to be good enough. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Yuri Levine is the co-founder of Waze, one of the world's largest community-based traffic and navigation apps. I've been using it for several years, and I love it. Yuri actually sold Waze back in 2013. It was acquired by Google for over a billion dollars. Today, it currently has 140 million users. Yuri was also an investor and board member of MoveIt, a global public transit app acquired by Intel in 2020 for a billion dollars. His new book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs, is a great read. It will be released in January 2023. My first question for Yuri was what it was like growing up in Israel and the influences that set in motion and formed his entrepreneurial spirit. So I would say something generic and something specific, right? And generic is Israel is is in a tough neighborhood, right? And uh, and when you are in a tough neighborhood, you grew up uh, tough. That's it, as simple as that, right? And so uh, surrounded by enemy, uh, having military services as mandatory, and you end up with uh, the realizations that giving up is not an option. And this is uh, what makes Israel such a very strong ecosystem for startups because. Uh, the attitude of never giving up is perhaps the most important uh, um, for for an entrepreneur to go into this journey, and the um, and and the realization that there are a lot of problems and we need to figure out solutions for them is is also very strong. Right? And so, uh, military service at the end of the day turns out to be growing a very powerful ecosystem in Israel for startups. But mine was particularly well, right? As a child. When I came to my dad with the craziest idea on the planet, he would say, um, hmm, why don't you give it a try? And that reduced fear of failure to the level that, okay, there is no bad ideas. There are something that you basically need to explore, right? If you, if you try that out and it doesn't work, you can basically say, you know what, I, that was a bad idea, right? Or that was a stupid idea or, or whatever. But you end up with, the desire and the passion to basically explore things yourself. And that eventually shaped me up as, as an entrepreneur and uh, trying to build different startups, going into this journey with uh, where there is so much uncertainty and going there with the conviction 
that it will end up well. Just like you said, getting that from your dad, we have tons of people who listen to this show who are sitting in America, have great ideas for businesses, but unfortunately, they're scared to take that risk because they might fail. And I love that you learned at an early age that it's okay to fail. That's how you learn and how you grow. It seems like that was a really big part of making you an entrepreneur. Definitely, yes. I would say that in general, fear of failure in Israel is lower. And that's from the regulatory point of view. So if you if your startup end up to be unsuccessful, then it's, it's a separate entity than yourself. The reality is that uh, second-time entrepreneurs have way higher likelihood of being successful, regardless what happened on the first time, right? So it doesn't matter if you were successful or failed on the first journey. Second journey, you dramatically increase the likelihood of being successful. And, and I think that in general, Silicon Valley is very similar. Right? So fear of failure is low. People are willing to take the risk, obviously. And I, and I would say entrepreneurship is it's a risk taker journey, right? And, and in order for people to go into this journey, then, then there is an equation or, or uh, that you need the passion for change to be dramatically higher than the fear of failure plus the alternative cost, right? So if you're making a million dollar a year as a lawyer, likelihood that he will actually quit that and go into this journey is small because the alternative cost is high. But if you basically say, wait a minute, what is it there to lose? I can always go back, right? And uh, um, then all of a sudden you you realize that maybe it's not that uh, high the alternative cost. For a second, I would say uh, Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed, that because you haven't tried new things before. And so obviously you need to try. And, and you know, we can list here all the successful sports people in the world with their quotes, right? So from Michael Jordan to Serena Williams to Wayne Gretzky to whomever you want that basically say the same thing, right? If you don't try, you already failed. That's yep. it. Yeah, uh, I love that. And I love how you said it. And there's this quote, which I love, I, I put on my desk, a, a winner is just a loser who tried one more time. And it's, it's one of my favorites. But I want to talk about you and, and you, your first entrepreneurial pursuit. Was Waze the first time you went out and looked to start your own business? No, Waze was the first significant successful one. <laughs> but, uh, but before that, uh, my career, I, I, I was at the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, for about six years. And after that, I went to the high-tech industry. I was a software developer at Converse Technology. And at the time, Converse Technology was doing a voicemail. Right? So many years ago, many, many years ago, before we had iPhones and before there was even text messages, we had a, a voicemail. And I left there at year 2000 and I joined a startup that was doing mobile email that was uh, eventually unsuccessful. So the problem was there, but then there was a different uh, solution for that coming from, from Canada, from uh, BlackBerry. And that turns out to be uh, much more useful than ours. And we shut it down. And, uh, and throughout my career before Waze, I was helping many startups and uh, some of them were more successful, less successful. And then in 2007, we started Waze. And we started Waze because, uh, because 
most of the startups in the world, they will usually start with a pain point. And I hate traffic jams. Right? So, so very strong emotional engagement leads you into basically telling yourself, wait a minute, I have to do something about it. Right? And then you go and do it. I want to talk about ways, but I want to ask you first, that original startup, when you had to close that down, how did that make you feel? What were you thinking at that time? It's not the first and it's not the last. I will be keep on missing shooting shooting balls all the day. And uh, it, my biggest failure is yet to come. That's great. You need that. Just it's so important as an entrepreneur, as I talked about, just so many people who just have that fear. But I love that attitude and starting ways. How did that all come about? So that was uh, um, for a second, I would say there were actually two eureka moments uh, throughout the, the the creation of ways. And, and the first one, I had that back in 2006. And, and you might not remember, but Israel is a very small place, right? And uh, and we were on a family vacation up north. So just imagine that you are in the Hamptons and uh, and eventually when you go back, you can choose between either the LIE or the, uh, the Northern Expressway or the, uh, the Southern, right? And so you ended up with 12 alternatives in Israel. And we were like 10 families on that vacation, and I was the last one to leave. And so I actually called them up, the rest of the cars, and asked them, what is traffic like on your route, right? And I realized that really what I need to have is someone ahead of me on the road. That's it. That will tell me what's going on. And so that was in 2006, and I I tried the different uh, um, ways to, to think about creating something around that, but I ended up with unsuccessful. And then in 2007, I met with uh, Ehud Ramir, the other co-founder of Waze. And, uh, and Ehud actually was uh, um, two steps ahead of me in his uh, thought process. Because um, when you think about it, you basically say, okay, here is the magic, right? If I have a lot of users, then I would know what traffic is like. And then the magic works, right? So this is the flywheel or the, or the, or, or the, of the system. More users better data, better data, more users. But uh, in order to have a lot of users, the application needs to be free. There is no way that you can actually charge people who are an application and actually have a lot of users. And the problem was that uh, the map licenses was extremely expensive. And I would actually figure out that he can create the map through crowdsource the same way that he can create the traffic information. And he actually built the first prototype running on a PDA. So... Remember, long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs, <laughs> then, then Nokia phones, and today we all have iPhones and Android, right? So, so this long time ago is 15 years. And, uh, and when we met in 2007, we said, okay, wait a minute, this is, this is my missing link. This is what exactly what I wanted for my vision. And, uh, um, and we decided that we're going to build ways. Yeah. And it was only until 2008 that we were able to raise capital. And, uh, and then it was surprisingly a journey of failures, right? Of trying to figure out product market fit and then trying to figure out growth. And then each one of, the, of those journeys is a journey of failures, right? And, uh, and if you realize that this is a journey of failures, then, then there are automatically uh, two conclusions, right? The first one we already established. Don't be afraid to fail, right? Because if you're afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed. The second one is, look, the faster that you fail, mm. you actually have enough time to make another attempt. And so fail fast. And, and the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. 
You don't need to be perfect in order to win the market. You need to be good enough. I love that advice. It makes so much sense because so many people too will wait to have a perfect product or perfect, I can't go to market with this or whatever it might be. And they lose out because someone goes and works on it and fixes it, makes it better. And obviously that was something you've done with Waze and I've used it for years and I've seen even from get to selling it, but how it's increased and the productivity's increased and, and gotten better. But I think I know the answer to this, but was there ever a time that you and your partner had thought about, okay, maybe we just can't get this going. Maybe we we should quit, maybe turn into a, another direction what we're doing. So entrepreneurs will never give up, right? And, uh, and they will die with their company and they will simply not give up. Right? And if you would ask an entrepreneur, when is the right time to give up? They will, they will tell you never. But in general, I would, I would actually set the rule for that and basically say, look, if the mission is right and the team is right, keep on fighting. Even if it's an uphill battle, keep on fighting. Because the mission is right and because the team is right. And you are doing that for the team. And they are doing that for you. Yeah, no, it's true. I want to get to your book and I want to get to that because going through it, I mean, there's just so many things I related to. First, though, I want to ask you, you ended up selling the business to Google. And what was that decision like and how did that come about? So um, look, at, at the end of the day, and and people often ask me if that was the right decision. And, and I would say, look, there are right decisions or no decisions. Because when you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you would choose a different path. That's it, right? And we can go back to the history of Google and saying, wait a minute, Google actually struggled at the beginning and they asked Yahoo to acquire them or to be more precise, excited home to acquire them. And uh, um, they asked for $2 million, right? $2 million, not $2 billion, not $2 trillion. And Yahoo said no. Right. And you look at it and you say, big mistake. And I say, we don't know that. We don't know what would have happened if they would have said yes. Right. And so, so number one, I'm definitely not sorry for, uh, for selling ways. Um, and number two, if you would ask me if ways today would be worth way more than the amount of money that was paid for them back then, absolutely yes. But yeah. we don't know it would have gotten here without uh, that transaction. Um, look. And, and my guideline is generic, right? If, if you are an entrepreneur and you get an offer, then you should ask yourself two or three different questions, right? So number one, is that a life-changing event for me? If yes, then start to consider that favorably. If not, then start to consider that unfavorably. Right? Number two, is that your only startup in your life? Do you think that this is the only one? Then if, if the answer is yes, then keep it. If the answer is, wait a minute, I'm going to build more, then this is perfect timing to go and build the next one, right? And, uh, and when that happens, I was already involved in my next startup or incubating that uh, more than in my mind, but actually finding the team and so forth. And then the third element, uh, which most of the entrepreneurs don't think about it, and this is really critical to understand, what does the day after means? Mm. Because this is where everything changes, right? Up until that moment, you were an independent company and you, you might be the CEO or the founder or whatever position you had in an independent company. 
And the day after, you are part of maybe a large corporation and they will tell you, okay, guess what? This is your new boss and these are the new rules and, uh, and this is it, right? And so and the day after is extremely important for the founders and definitely the CEO, but they're also very, very important for the rest of the employees. And so when you ask the, that questions on a personal level, then the next thing that you need to ask yourself about all those for your employees, right? Is that going to be a life-changing event for them? And if it's not, then make sure that it is going to be a life-changing event for them. And, and so negotiate the better deal for your people, right? And number two, what does it mean the day after for them? What does it mean mm -hmm. for them? Because they are the one that brought you to this point, right? And, uh, and you need to keep on carrying them uh, throughout the entire journey. And, and so for, for me at the time, that was um, straightforward to say, I was actually okay with staying and keep on going. But we as the founders, we decided that uh, this is an opportunity, life-changing event for us. Selling to Google is always a good thing because Google is not buying in order to destroy, but in order to keep the value. And so we had the mission of helping drivers to avoid traffic jams remaining in place. And that was uh, pretty good. And, uh, and by the way, I left uh, the day after. <laughs> I know now I know you're a hardcore entrepreneur and selling a couple of businesses myself, much smaller, but the same situation. And as an entrepreneur now in my third business, it was always so hard that day after. I love how you talk about that. I remember the first time being like, you mean I we can't just do this? I can't go do this. I gotta talk to this guy who has to talk to that guy or talk to this girl. It really, that's such a great point to think about what it's going to look like. And also, I love how you talked about your employees, because from what I read, you made it at the time, I think maybe had 100 plus employees, and you kind of made it life changing for each of those as well, from what I understand financially, which not a lot of companies do, or not a lot of people do. So I think that's pretty heartwarming. Definitely, yes. We had 107 employees at the time, and, and that was a life-changing event for all of them. And that was the same with uh, Movit. It was life-changing event, dramatic acquisition, dramatic impact on all the employees. And, and in general, look, my sense and, and is that we, we, are, we need to, to share more with our employees because at the end of the day, these are the ones that are going to uh, do all the hard work. These are the ones that are going to bring the success. And when I say employees are the most important one is that uh, you need to think about it and you need to accept that and you need to embrace that and not saying uh, paying customer is number one priority. No, employees are. Yeah. We take care of the employees. They will take care of the paying customers. Let's talk about your book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. What made you? write this book so you know you you have clearly identified me as an entrepreneur a hardcore entrepreneur but there is another strong personality of a teacher and i feel equally rewarded if i build stuff myself or i guide someone to build it and uh, and when i left ways i don't have an executive role anymore but i actually mentor 10 different CEOs of different startups that I'm involved with. And writing the book is fulfilling my destiny and, and number one, satisfying my teacher personality. And number two is fulfilling my destiny. And my destiny is about value creation. I feel that this is my mission and I can do that for users throughout Waze or Movie or any of my startups. 
And I can do that through mentorship of uh, and guidance of other people. And and the book is another way to fulfill that destiny. And I want to believe, and Steve Wozniak said about this book, that this should be the Bible for entrepreneurs. I want to believe that this can create value to, to any business person, definitely entrepreneurs, anyone in the, the high-tech industry. And if by the end of the day, they will take one thing out of this book, and that one thing will increase their likelihood of being successful, then I did my share. But then I would ask them to do one more thing, pay it forward. More from our guest, but first, a word from our sponsors. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And we're back. You know, it's so incredible because very rarely do I interview someone and there's a book because not that there's a lot of people that put out books and, but this one struck me specifically just in some of the things you mentioned. And I really felt like I knew coming in, you're a hardcore entrepreneur and, and really just understood that. And I think one of the things I'm very curious about, because in in the book, you talk about firing, right? You said, or I'm not sure if you said this, but kind of paraphrasing, when building a successful team, you suggest that firing is more important than hiring. And that has a large impact on the CEO's position in the company. Can you explain why you put more emphasis on firing? So, so let me start with uh, with a story, right? So, I, I spoke with many entrepreneurs and and with many that their startup failed, and uh, the statistics are such that many will fail, right? And ask them why, what happened, right? And and about half say the team was not right. And I kept on digging. Okay, well, what do you mean the team was not right? So, so I heard quite often this guy was not good enough, and this guy so not good enough was one reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had a communication issue, right? something that I actually call the ego management issues. But then ask them the most important question, when did you know that the team is not right? All of them knew within the first month, within the first month. And then he said, wait a minute, if you knew within the first month that the team is not right, then you didn't do anything. The problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make our decision. Firing is a hard decision. Hiring is an easy decision. Easy decisions are easy. Hard decisions are hard. This is why they usually will be dragged for a long period of time. Now, here is the real problem, with that, right? So, so you know that the team is not right. And everyone else knows that as well. Everyone in the team knows that there is something that doesn't work here, right? And so everyone knows and the CEO doesn't do anything. That's even a bigger problem. And this is why the need to make that decision with conviction and execute that is way more powerful than, than anything else, right? Because everyone knows, right? And for a second, I would say, and we all realize, look, large organizations have normal distribution of people. They are the amazing people and the very good people and the good people and the less than average people and, and those that shouldn't be there, right? 
imagine that you are leading this organization and you can do one of two things, right? Number one, hire another amazing person. Number two, fire one of the people that shouldn't be there. Which one will have better results? Firing is going to have way better results because everyone knows. And this is why firing is so dramatically better. And, and the, um, look, there are two tools that I will essentially give leaders and, and managers that hire and fire people. One is about new hires, right? So, so we think that, okay, wait a minute, we are going to be successful in 100% of the hires. <laughs> Steph Carey is missing from the free for line, right? That's it, right? Not to mention that he's making 45% from the free <laughs> That's it. Yes. And so great hiring manager is going to be at 80% heat ratio. And lesser is going to be at 70%. Even great hiring manager will need to fire. And then the, the rule that I have established is that, look, if everyone knows within a month, then once you hire a new person, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this guy? If the answer is yes, excellent. I would even say give them a little raise, right? Or do something to recognize that. But if the answer is no, fire them that day because you already established their trajectory that they are not going to be successful. And wait a minute, they actually deserve to be successful. Not in here, but someplace else. Let them go. I love that because... It has been one of the things over the years where I found myself, my first business early on, we had a great salesperson and it was the hardest decision because he was bringing in so much revenue and we were a $25 million company and he was bringing in a few million dollars or whatever, you know, a big portion of it. But behind the scenes, he was back talking and negative and it's, we sat with it. And I just remember finally firing him and how it picked up everyone. And we ended up doing better the next year. It happened again. Like that to me, it was so hard because I almost judged that that's why I love what you say. And you do know within a month and you understand that. And what people don't understand and what I loved about this and what you just said is that it picks the rest of the team up because they all know. And that's so important. Yeah, that, that's the most important part, right? If, if no one would know, then it's your problem. Right? <laughs> right? Your problem is actually way bigger. Your problem is that there is someone that shouldn't be there and everyone knows and you are not doing anything about it. Yeah. Talk about the title of the book and what that means to you. So look, all of my startups started from a problem, right? I ran into something and I tell myself, no, 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 I have to do something about it, right? And, and for a second, I would say, when your destiny, when your mission in life is about value creation, the easiest way to solve, to create value is to solve a problem. Because you know that you are eliminating the problem, that someone, you're creating value for someone, right? And maybe, hopefully, it's a lot of someone's. And, and so that that is one part. The other part is that, when you focus, when you think of the problem all day long, when you fall in love with the problem, the problem remains the North Star of your journey. And you don't have the entire path. You know what's the next step and you know where the North Star is. And it's way easier uh, to get there or to keep on going through this journey when you know where the North Star is. 
And sometimes there will be cloudy skies, right? Sometimes there will be cloudy skies. But for a second, I would say, look, if you want to start, then start. think of a problem, right? A big problem, something that it's, uh, it's worth solving, something that the world will become a better place if you solve that. Right? And then ask yourself, so who has this problem? And, and if you happen to be the only person, then look, I actually have a very good drink that I can recommend, and then this is it, right? But if a lot of people actually have this problem, then what you really want to do is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem. And only then go and build the solution. And if you follow this path, then you dramatically increase the likelihood of being successful because if your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating that. And so there are three parts of it, right? So, so it's value creation, it's the North Star and the last one, it's a way easier story to tell, right? If I will go back into 2007 and I will come to you and say, wait a minute, I'm building an AI-based crowdsourced navigation system. <laughs> and you will be scratching your head and saying, why would I even care, right? If I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then all of a sudden you do care, right? So when you speak about the problem, you create emotional engagement and your story is way easier to be told. I love that. Also in the book, you had talked about what was kind of interesting. You kind of compared the journey of building a startup to a roller coaster and fundraising a roller coaster in the dark. What were some of the peaks and valleys you experienced when you did create Waze and your other startups? Because that's a big issue, especially raising funds and how hard it is. And it's a roller coaster. I, I get it. <laughs> Well, you've built companies before, then you know it's a roller coaster. Small companies, <laughs> not ways. <laughs> Regardless, it's always a roller coaster, right? Same. Because they are changes, they are dramatic changes. But essentially, look, the, the journey of creation composed of multiple phases, right? So so in each one of them, you are starting from scratch. And obviously, when you're starting from scratch, you want to think that you know exactly what you're doing, but you're actually going into a try and error journey, right? A journey of failures. I'm going to try my thesis. And if it doesn't work, then I'm going to have another thesis and try that out. And if it doesn't work, then I have another thesis and try that out. And I keep on trying different things, right? And and, it, and what happened is that every time that you go into a new thesis, you're 100% sure that this time it's going to work. And, and the day that you realize that it's not, this is where you fell off the cliff, right? And uh, And you need to, tomorrow, is going to be the first day of the rest of your life. And you're going to start a new one, a new thesis. And this is regardless if this is about features of the product to figure out product market fit or about uh, marketing campaigns to figure out growth or about uh, negotiating with potential customers to figure out the business model. Each one of them is going to be a journey of failures. And each one of them is going to have multiple theses that you will need to, to explore and, um, and eventually you will find those that do work or you will die. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, and, you know, looking at it and your success, I can't help to think that I go back to just not having that fear of failure and coming up with it. There's Silicon Valley here in the United States. Israel's become a major tech hub. You kind of said it at the beginning, but do you think starting your company in Israel has made a difference than if you had started this same thing in Silicon Valley? So, so, so I would say 
two things, right? So number one, entrepreneurs will start their startup in their backyard, right? Whatever their backyard is, right? right? If you live in Austin, then you'll start in Austin. If you live in San Francisco, you'll start it there. And if you happen to be in Tel Aviv, you'll start that in Tel Aviv, right? Yeah, and so this is, and and there, there is a good reason to do that this way because you learn so much faster in your backyard, right? and you your your time from thesis to exploration to results is so much shorter in your backyard that you would know in no time if it's working or not working. Once you start to figure that out, then you need mm-hmm. to understand where is your market. Now Israel is a small place; it's about. Uh, about the size of Massachusetts, right? So, so eight thousand square miles, and uh, close to maybe nine or ten million people, and, and really the same size of Massachusetts. And in you know, opposed to all the the Berkshire's mountains and the <laughs> unpopulated area of Massachusetts, we have the desert, and that's about it. <laughs> if you start in Massachusetts, you don't think about Massachusetts as a market here. You think of the U.S. You will start in Boston. That that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But you don't. You don't think of the Massachusetts as the only market because that it's going to be too small. Israel is a small place. You don't think of Israel as the market. You think of global market from the first day. If you start in the U.S. or in a large country, you don't think global. You think U.S. That's it. Right? Mm. Or Germany or Russia or India or China. Or, and by the time you will start to think and figure out that, wait a minute, there is another part of the world to be captured. Number one, you're going to have competition. Number two, if you're successful in the U.S., then your globalization strategy is really simple. If you're successful in the U.S., then raise tons of capital and go through M&As and acquire all the, all the leading competitors in the different countries and become global. That's it. But if you start in Israel, then you start to ask yourself, okay, wait a minute. How does my globalization strategy looks like? And you think about it from the first day. And then you go and do an analysis of the world and you realize, okay, my addressable market are drivers with smartphones, right? So so not India in 2010, because mm. if, you, if you have a smartphone in India in 2010, you also had a driver. Interesting. You start driving yourself, right? But, uh, but definitely Brazil and definitely um, any place, right? So emerging markets, traffic jams are way more severe than they are in the US or in Israel. And, and, you know, if you think that traffic jams are bad in New York or L.A., then I would suggest try Mexico or Sao Paulo, right, or, or Mumbai. And, and so essentially you end up with uh, building your globalization strategy from the first day and, and you follow that. Yeah. Fall in love with the problem, not the solution. We're coming out of a time none of us have experienced, I would imagine, globally with COVID and issues and there are many problems I think uh, we've seen, we have now. If you were thinking, entrepreneur, about a business now, is there anything, problems that you would think of now that need solutions? There are a lot of problems. <laughs> I, I would just say one thing, right? Just imagine that the U.S. medical services are five times more expensive than they are in Germany. Now, it's not that they're better. They're simply five times more expensive because Germany had excellent medical services. And you would say, wait a minute, this is, uh, you look at the GDP and you ask yourself how much of, of the GDP of the U.S. is actually going into medical services. It's about 10%. So 10%, uh, five times more expensive, obviously a big problem that needs to be addressed. Independence, something that hits Europe pretty bad, the Ukraine and Russia war, 
is creating an energy crisis in Europe, right? And uh, and eventually you ask yourself, okay, so what is going to be the end result now? The, the reality is that most of the innovation is coming from a need, right? And, and Europe had no need for a long period of time, right? Now they do. I'm pretty sure that within two years, we will see many of the countries actually dropping the use of, uh, of gas and switching into different different energy production. And, uh, and mm. because of the, the need is driving creativity. Without the need, there is no creativity. And there are a lot of problems, right? And, uh, you know, obviously mobility is an area that is close to my heart. And, uh, and you think of mobility today. And, and, and let me show you this, right? We started in 2007 with the mission and the vision that we're going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams. Today, there are more traffic jams than before. And so obviously we are not done, or at least I am not done. And uh, I keep on trying to to fight that war because uh, it's worth fighting for. Yeah, I love how your passion and energy still there for some of those same problems because the world's always changing and new new problems arise and problems that you solve then need other solutions. And before I let you go, I wanted to ask, you know, you talked about kind of two sides to Yuri in terms of something that struck me, obviously, entrepreneur through and through. I admire that not fail. It doesn't matter. I also admire the fact you talked about wanting to be a teacher. You're a mentor. Do you get more joy out of that? Is it different or building businesses? Equal, really equal. I feel equally rewarded on both cases. The thing is that when you mentor, you can actually have multiple startups right at the same time. That's a great point. You could do both. But yeah, it must it must be such an incredible feeling just being able to talk to entrepreneurs who went through similar things you went through and give them that confidence. Such a gift. And now, as I said, very few people we've had on the show with a book, but this, I have to say, fall in love with the problem, not the solution, just everything in there I related to. And I really want to thank you for sharing that and putting it out there. And now people can actually, without having one-on-one mentorship, read the book. And I want to thank you, Yuri, for two things. One, for coming on the show. And two, for my trips home from Long Island with Waze. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. Um, and look, hopefully this book will, um, will help you as well to become even more successful. I hope so. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. 
Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.